This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we are here for you every Monday night, 5 p.m. Eastern, and have replays throughout the week. Now, new technologies such as the Internet of Things, digitization, AI, robotics, they're making their ways into our lives and into our workplace as well. The purpose of this show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. We want to understand the work of tomorrow. In each show, I will talk with experts and leaders from specific industries and get their insights on what is happening today and how things are changing in the future. We already had an episode on eSports discussing how athletes might soon be replaced by stars who made their careers on the PlayStation and the Xbox. In today's show, we move from the athlete to the coach. Sports coaching, be it for pro athletes or for hobby sportsmen like me, is a multi-billion dollar industry offering employment to over 200,000 people in the U.S. Now, you might think of a coach standing at the sideline yelling at players, feeding tennis balls or driving a motorboat next to a crew boat, but times are changing in this world as well. To help us understand the coaching profession and how it is changing with technology, I have two wonderful guests today. Paul Anacon is a legendary tennis coach who coached uh, Pete Sampras and Roger Federer, among many other, other stars. In the second half of the show, I will talk to Sino Muller, Olympic gold medalist in rowing and the founder of an online coaching platform, EliteRowingCoach.com. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Christian. Paul, you were a top player yourself. You won the Australian Open in doubles. You were ranked, I think, number top 12 in the world. Was it hard for you to transition from player to coach? Uh, it's a little bit different. I mean, uh, when you're playing clearly everything, <laughs> especially in individual sport, is about you and your schedule and your preparation, and you control a lot of the outcomes. And then to kind of transition into a coaching role, you have to figure out, first of all, what your coaching philosophy is, and, and second of all, how to manage the, the player or players you're coaching. Um, and in an individual sport, it's a little bit different than team sports. Many team sports the teams actually conform to the coach's philosophy. So the coach sets the tone and how everyone wants to act and how they should act and what the philosophy and strategy is. But in an individual sport, particularly at the professional level, as a coach, you have to figure out how to say what you want to say, but the way that individual player needs to hear it. And what I mean by that is some players hear things differently. They need to hear it with a lot of uh, – some players need to, to hear it with a lot of emphasis on structure. Other players do things by feel. Some players need a lot of repetition. Some players do better with visualization. So there's a lot of different strategies that you have to undertake, and it depends on who you're coaching and which buttons you want to press. So for me, it took a little bit of time, but I've been very fortunate. Um, I've been able to coach a, a couple of great players in Pete Sampras and, and Roger Federer and um, a bunch of other very, very good players as well. So I've gotten to run the gamut, and, and it's taught me a lot. And I think the biggest thing about coaching is um, really to make sure you keep your antenna up because you never stop learning. And um, every day that I'm out there, I pick up some new techniques, but uh, I've really enjoyed the process so far. Now, as a player, what was it that you enjoyed most from your coaches? Uh, well, as a player, I needed um, I needed clarity. Uh, I, I like to hear from a coach a very clear and simple game plan. Um, I think it can get very confusing 
when you send mixed messages uh, to players and to teams. Um, I think clarity and, and a sense of um, really confidence and direction in what you're trying to accomplish. Um, for me, I tended to put a lot of pressure on myself, so I'd like to emphasize the process um, and not necessarily the result. And that's kind of really what my philosophy has been as a coach as well. I've really tried to make my players believe in their work process, their training process, and if they do all the right things as they go through that process, that the results will take care of themselves. Um, and look, there's a lot of pressure out there. You're always going to feel the pressure. So if you believe in the process and you can go out there and just execute what you do well, then the results do take care of themselves. And I think um, with the all-time greats uh, in tennis in particular, we've seen some pretty amazing legends come through so many different times, and they have very sound processes and also trust their talents in big moments, particularly under pressure. Now with uh, Sloane Stevens, Stan Wawrinka, you, you have a couple of athletes that you're working on. Uh, are there different like coaching business models in tennis, The kind of the 100% dedicated to personal coach, like uh, Rafa's famous Uncle Tony mm-hmm. versus a Nick Boliteri, kind of the academy where you just run a big machine? How, how, how does coaching work for most of the top players? Uh, it's a great question, Christian. And, and the thing is with tennis, it's many different ways. You have what I would categorize as institutionalized coaching, which is through federations. The United States Tennis Association has a great group of coaches that they work with their player development. Tennis Australia does the same thing. So the coaches get employed by the federation and then they work through the players through the federation. Then you have the, the entrepreneurial business models that you mentioned, the Nick Boliteri Tennis Academy, Patrick Moore Toglu in Europe has his own tennis academy, Saddlebrook Academy um, in Florida and Tampa. So those business models are multifaceted and generate revenue through a number of different ways, and that's more about the volume of players. And then you have the private coaches that do a lot of individual lessons where they structure their income and their business model around teaching, understanding the teaching method of how to hit the ball for the younger players between ages, let's say, 8 and 14 and 15. Um, And there's a number of uh, great teachers around the country that have done this extremely well through the decades. And then on top of all that, you have the coaches that do it uh, on the world stage that travel around the world coaching professional players, which is kind of what I've done for the last 20 years. Um, And then in that model, you get hired by the player, so the player pays you, um, which is a very interesting business model because the player pays you, yet you're supposed to be telling the player what to do. So it's a very precarious situation, and it, it, uh, it's very different than some of the team sports, the NFL or um, even the soccer teams in Europe, the football teams, where the coaches get paid by the team, and so they can be much more dictatorial and much more able to be the leaders of the team. But it can be a little bit different when you're working for a player who's actually giving you your paycheck. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of great players who communicate extremely well, who receive information extremely well. So I've been able to feel like I can get my messages across and not walk across that line of wondering if you're going to get fired the next day. Well, it certainly hits a court here with with me as a a private business school where, again, we get 
paid by our students, right? And nevertheless, just like the coaches, we have the the tough job of sometimes saying a little bit of a harsh word to the the students. So that certainly resonates with me. Um, tell us a little bit more about that that kind of that process of coaching. When when you were uh, on the tour as as a coach, as, as the personal coach for say Pete Sampras, what does a typical day, if there's ever such a thing, a typical day on the tour, what did the day look like? Yeah, well, well, the tennis calendar is about 11 months long, so you pick and choose what you do with your players as you pick and choose your training blocks during the year. For instance, right now in December is a big training block where most of the players are getting prepared to start in January. So in December, you have a big training block, and then in January, most players that are on the tour will go off to Australia and play the Australian Open and the tournaments that uh, lead into the Australian Open. When you're on the road at the tournaments, most of it is maintenance. Most of it is about just shoring up technique, shoring up strategies and philosophies about playing and trying to get through the competitive matches. It's more about playing tennis. When you have a big block of time in these training blocks, you can get into some technique, you can tweak different shot production models, you can do things like that, but you have to be careful when you're on the road doing things like that because the tennis calendar is so jammed, and you basically play week after week, so you don't want to create confusion or doubt in the player's mind. So if a player's winning a lot of matches during the week, there's a very little practice that's going on because they're playing a full week's tennis and then getting some rest and recovery. When the player doesn't do as well at the tournaments, you can then uh, put a put put a put across some time where you can put in some hard work leading into the next event. But most of the work on the road is about strategy and point structure and maximizing your game plan and a little bit less about technique. The better you get and the higher you're ranked. Um, probably I would say the analogy would be the less technique you work on and the more strategy and point structure you work on. Interesting. Now, I, I was just watching on the tennis channel uh, one of these classic matches between Federer and Nadal, I think it was the Wimbledon match. I couldn't help but notice how... Uh how lighter they were in terms of I just felt like give these people something to eat. If I look at the Nadal and Federer today, they're just so much more muscular. Um, how has that changed? How has kind of just the kind of the athletics and the just kind of the the raw muscular body structure of the players changed over the years? Yeah, it, it, it really has, Christian. Like every other sport, the players are getting bigger, stronger. They're becoming better athletes. There's a lot more sports science involved. There's a lot more technology involved. And so the players are eating better with the sports science and the dietary, the rest and recovery is more important. Um, and, and the players are starting to really understand how to manage their bodies. And that's why, you know, you're seeing Roger Federer at 36 years of age still playing such great tennis. Rafael Nadal is going to be 32 in 2018. And these guys play a very physical brand of tennis. But more importantly, what they've, do, what they've done is they've put great support teams around them. They've got experts in each field that help them with their diet, nutrition, their strength and conditioning, their rest and recovery, the tennis component of it. Then they've got their business manager that manages all the appearances and all the commercial commitments due to their sponsorship requirements. So it, it is a pretty complex environment, and it changes. Um, but it's just like every other industry now. The players are starting to use 
all of these different tools to be bitter, bigger, better, stronger athletes, and they're using some of the technology as well to tap into ways to play better tennis um, in terms of how to hit their shots more effectively, what's been successful, what hasn't, finding patterns that are successful when they play. So it's a, it's a continuing, growing spectrum, as are all the sports industries. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Paul Anacon, tennis coach of Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, and many other great players. And we're just transitioning to the role of technology in coaching. Lots of things have changed, as Paul was just pointing out. So uh, does does Roger Federer have like a chip in his racket and his shoes? Or what what is kind of the, the hardware technology that is feeding the, the technology, the data that you're looking at? Yeah, there's a lot of different things. I mean, when you talk about the equipment, um, you know, most of the best, best players are getting, in particular, the shoes are getting pretty specialized to their feet to make sure that the shoes are, are very uh, well adept at, at, at supporting the body because there's a lot of pounding. The rackets are meticulously weighted so that each racket weighs the same, the balance is the same, the grip shape, grip size is the same, all the strings are the same tension. And then what happens is the coaches tend to scout matches. They take their notes during the match. I make notes on my little phone as I'm watching the match, and then they go through um, other technological things afterwards, analytical stuff. There's a couple of great companies out there. Hawkeye is one of the companies that um, does a lot of the uh, recognition and a lot of the um, production of what's happening during matches that you'll see on ESPN and Tennis Channel when we're showing matches. You'll see shot location. We talk about revolution of spins on the ball, average speed, height over the net, shot directions. So we use those things um, to go back to help our players um, and help them understand how to maximize what they're doing. I'm involved with a company called PlaySight, which is another uh, technology company that uh, is really predicated on doing everything that they can possibly do to maximize your talent, whether you're a club player or a pro player, breaking the courts into different quadrants, making sure that you understand where you're hitting the ball, the speed of the shot, your shot selection, your patterns, your tendencies, um, all the different locations of where the ball's going and why. And then on top of that, also some of the things that PlaySight can do, along with some of the other companies, is you can look at stroke production. You can go off and go to a little kiosk on the side of the court, and with your teacher, you can see if you're producing your shots the right way or the wrong way. And to cap it all off, you could go back and actually do some live streaming. There's a library on PlaySight where you can produce all the different matches that you've played in live stream. So it's getting incredibly complex with the technology. Um, in many ways, it's terrific, Christian, but in other ways, I don't think that um, – I think you have to be very careful about circuit overload with people that are playing tennis, particularly at the club level. You want to keep it pretty simple and pretty basic, but there's such a wealth of information to pick through with the analytical stuff, the sports nutrition stuff, the strength and conditioning, the mobility. But I tell you what, it's a never-ending journey. And uh, as we all know, it's not a destination. It is a journey. Everyone continues to try to get better. So in the tennis world, the, the top circus is reasonably small, right? And so do you have to sit down with a, a player before the, uh, an important match and go through these statistics and say, like, well, look, I noticed that 37% of the second serves are going across court. Uh, or is that something that at level, that level they just go like, yeah, yeah, I've played that player already 15 times? <laughs> no, you go through your pre-match routine no matter who you're coaching on the tour. And I, 
you know, historically with me, I would go through things particularly um, very uh, kind of locked into what the player needs. In other words, like Roger was someone that actually enjoyed conversation, enjoyed going kind of in-depth and understanding nuances and, and things that have happened in the past against certain players. Sometimes we'd look at some video to go through things. Pete Sampras back in the day, really wanted things very succinct. You give him certain patterns, certain things to look for, and let him go and do it. Roger would articulate a few more things, talk a little bit more about it. Tim Henman of Great Britain was the same way, former uh, top five player in the world. Tim liked to go through a lot of stuff. But then you always circle back to the simplistic strategy and game plan that you want your player to have. And really the cliche that I always throw out at all the players that I worked with is make sure you win or lose doing what you do best particularly in the pressure moments. So you already mentioned the company Playside you're working with. Uh, is there a certain trickle-down effect or a certain democratization of technology that you see that what is used as a pros now is coming to the mass market where maybe it was a delay of five or ten years? Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, one of the one of the platforms that Playsite has actually been working on is they've gone to a number of different uh, industries, both inside and out the sports world, the collegiate sports world. There's a lot of college uh, teams that are getting involved in the Playsite program. And it's not just uh, for tennis. Um, the Golden State Warriors basketball team, NBA basketball team, has Playsite installed in their training facility um, and you can not only do that but you can also go to the US go to USC University of Southern California's college and go to their tennis courts and you can see it um, in use at the collegiate courts um, also there's a lot of uh, private industry folks that are using it at their clubs um, teachers are finding it a really incredible uh, teaching tool to get things really explicitly across to the players that they're working with. Some players like to hear things verbally, but I tell you what, there's no better combination than having a good verbal teacher to then go to the net and look at a kiosk, which which PlaySite has, then to back it up with video and show it in video, and then you can do it in slow motion, and then get all the way down to the nitty-gritty of spin, height over the net, shot selection, footwork. So it's really incredible, and, and I think, Christian, we're going to see more of this throughout the technology industry. We're going to see it trickle down to all of the different uh, all of the different avenues where the general folks want to use it. The USTA has it installed in their facility down in Lake Nona, Orlando, and I believe it's on about 65 courts down there. So it's it's really becoming pretty comprehensive, and it's becoming a great learning tool, and it's becoming very used throughout the industry, all the way from you know club players to the top-ranked players in the world. Now, I notice there are a couple of websites out there who uh, basically allow athletes to upload video footage and then get advice from coaches. Uh, can you can you coach an athlete remotely uh, in terms of teach somebody a better serve by just watching a video footage and giving feedback? Yeah, you, you actually can. I mean, I, I I've done that through through some <laughs> through some video tennis lessons where I've had people send me video of them and then I get on an eye chat with them and go through the video and talk about where their shoulder position is, if they're getting rotation, if they're getting the legs into the serve, if the swing of the pendulum is going the right way with the racket. Um, so you actually can use that extremely well. And even to the point of when I was coaching Roger, there were times where I was not on the road with him where I would be watching the match and then we would circle back afterwards and go through stuff on the telephone. So there's a lot of different ways now that technology is really making it quite a unique time to teach and coach people because you can do so much 
through the internet. You can do so much through these websites, and you can do so much just through basic, simple things like iChatting and Skype, etc. There's a lot of different ways to have an impact. Does it help you also with the productivity? Pardon to use such a harsh business word, but in terms of like the number of hours you can, uh, do you get more out of uh, an hour of coaching by having? the technology be used as opposed to just using it remotely? Or in other words, can you coach more athletes through technology than you could before? Oh, sure, Christian. I mean, there's a, look, I think everything in life these days is about trying to be efficient, hopefully not to the point of us all becoming too lazy, but about being efficient, trying to find ways to get to the crux of any big issue very quickly. And Technology allows this to happen not only for individual players, but allows you to be more efficient so that you, the, the amount of hours you have in the day can be put to use more effectively. And so that's kind of what I've found. There are times where I'll physically be on the tennis court going through stuff with someone for an hour and a half while they're doing things, and I can actually get home and be at my computer and then jump on the phone and do a couple other things as well. So I think it's a process that continues to grow, but I also think it's helping us become more efficient and hopefully more effective. Now, Agassi has written a great book called Open, with lessons for, for great tennis and for life. Uh, you also just published a book, uh, Coaching for Life. Uh, tell us about it. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I did, Christian. I, I uh I published a book called Coaching for Life, and uh, I'll give myself a little plug here. It's on Amazon.com and iRebooks.com, as well as my website, PaulAnacone.com. And really what it is, it's kind of a – it is my journey through development of becoming a coach and the philosophies that I have found as a player and coaching Pete Sampras and Roger Federer, the techniques, philosophies, and, and strategies that they've used to maximize their skills – and what I've done is I've tried to use tennis as a metaphor for life. I've tried to show that a lot of what they do is about managing stressful situations and how they adjust and deal with adversity. And we've gone through a lot of different anecdotes through their careers where I've talked about them co overcoming adversity to win major titles and then give it kind of a how-to of how it can help people just in day-to-day -day life. Um, and like I said, I've been very fortunate because I've had such good company around me to help me go through things. I've tried to be um, really a sponge, and I just took all of the notes that I've had over the last 25 and 30 years and put this book together, about 170 pages of anecdotes and how-tos and some nice stories and photos. So I'm pretty proud of it, and I think it's really helpful because I just hear so many of my friends both inside and outside the industry that struggle with adversity, struggle with pressure situations. And it's amazing when you see great athletes come through in pressure situations. There's got to be a rhyme or reason to it. And uh, I've been very spoiled. I got to sit in the front row seat and watch some of the all-time greats do it. So I figured I might as well take some notes and maybe learn some stuff myself and share it with some folks. So the parallels between coaching, we talked about you know, leadership and management in general, but even I felt when you made the opening comments on what it takes to be a great coach, I almost felt reminded of what it takes to be a parent. The similarities are pretty remarkable. Um, where is this all heading? I mean, if you would dare make a prediction kind of five, ten years from now, maybe even 20 years from now, what will coaching look like when we are looking for 2030 or beyond? Yeah, I, th I think it's going to continue to evolve in a multifaceted kind of role, whether it's tennis or other sports. We're going to see different kinds of specialists. You're going to have uh, the analytical specialist that's going to come up with all the 
different data to plug into a player's game plan, whether it's a player or a team, and it doesn't matter what sport it is, it works the same way. Then you're going to have even a more specified strength and conditioning area. So everyone's going to, everything's going to be more compartmentalized and I think more explicit. I think you're always going to have that tennis coach that's going to be the manager of the environment that's going to try to put all the pieces of the puzzle together to help uh, indicate and push the player in the right direction depending on what's needed at that moment and how it plugs into the macro picture of what they're doing. Um, but I think it's just going to continue to go in that direction. And I think even more importantly, the players and the athletes in, in all these industries are going to get bigger and better and stronger because the technology grows, the knowledge grows, and they're all finding new ways to maximize their skills. Says Paul Anacon, the tennis coach of Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, and the author of a book called Coaching for Life. We need to take a short break right now. When we come back, I will welcome our second guest, the Olympic gold medalist, Sino Miller. And we continue to talk about that theme about coaching and the job of coaching, how it is changing with technology in the future. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We'll be back right after the break. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back uh, from the break. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, and we've been talking today about coaching at the future of the coaching profession in the first half of the, half of the show. I had the pleasure of talking with Paul Anacon, a former coach of uh, Pete Sampras and Roger Federer. And in the second half of the show, I am now having the pleasure to welcome Sino Müller, Olympic gold medalist in rowing and the founder of an online coaching platform, EliteRowing.Coach.com. Welcome, Sino. Hello there. Lovely to be here. Hey, Xeno, I biked along the Schuylkill River this morning, and it still had big chunks of ice on it, but there were a bunch of college crews rowing. Do you miss the cold weather that uh, you enjoyed when you were in Brown, I'm sure, in the winter training on the on the lovely rivers? <laughs> we trained on the Seekonk River at Brown. Um, you know, that's the reason why I moved to California, is to be able to train year-round in, um, in nicer, warmer weather where the water does not freeze. So you point in some of your videos at how you benefited yourself from a, a great coaching experience. What was it that you enjoyed most from uh, from a coach? What was the most valuable in your career? You know, I was extremely lucky. Then when I started rowing, at the boathouse, we had already a coach that was an elite rowing coach uh, who trained uh, Anne Martin, a U.S. single scholar, to a silver medal at the 1988 Olympics. And getting the right coaching makes learning a sport uh, more fun. And uh, because you improve your performance so much faster than everybody else, um, that was incredible. You know, you, you make less mistakes because the, the coach who has been around the block at the highest level you know, guides you along and uh, makes you smarter as an athlete. What was the role of technology back then? So rowing irks, the rowing machine, I think, goes back to the 1930s. Uh, the, were the irks the type of the rowing machines that we see nowadays with the Concept 2 in the gym? You know what? Concept 2 started in the early 80s, and I had um, the bittersweet experience that uh, a concert to rowing machine was already available. And the reason why I'm saying concert too is because now the, that brand is far more common with, um, with gyms like CrossFit. Um, and that is the brand that I used when I started rowing. Those, those rowing machines, 
they're being used to recruit the high school rowers to colleges. And when you can't go out on the water, you stick the rower on the rowing machine. And uh, it's a great coaching tool. And that's what I do for most of my coaching is to coach people on the rowing machine. It clearly must have worked in your case. Uh, let's listen in to a short audio segment from uh, your own rowing career. A Canadian sculler has been asked a serious question and can't respond. In fact, no one can respond. This is enormous now. Muller pulling away every stroke. He's going further. And look at his face there. He knows he's got this. He's looking to his left there, and he's so strong. The rest can't do anything about it. Porter's being overhauled here by Langer. They've got the battle for the silver and bronze. But Clearwater and Zeno Muller striding out for Switzerland. He's not going to be caught. This is a fantastic burst to take the gold medal. And who gets the silver? It's just Porter who holds off Langer for the silver. The German takes the bronze and the world champion, a distant fourth. Well, I get goosebumps from just listening at it uh, many years later as the bystander. Uh, How's your victory, your memory of that day? Well, you just surprised me because I didn't think uh, that was going to pop up. I love it, you know. I love it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, I don't get tired of hearing it. You know, one of the things that is special is that the people I ended up racing were taller than I was. All right. So I was never the tallest or the strongest. And The beauty about rowing is that with the right coaching, with the right technique, rowing is, yes, it's very physical, but when you row well, it is, it is like an art form. I would say that any sport done well, it is really hard to see the effort. And thanks to these coaches that I had, I was able to leverage this technique to be the fastest single scholar um, Still today, I am one of the very few who has been rowing 2,000 meters in the single skull under six minutes and 40 seconds. And that is that is thanks to these coaches who knew what they were doing. Um, and, you know, the people that I coach are also a product of the same coaching family tree that I belong to. And And how fortunate was I? I mean, it's amazing. So rowing is not tennis or soccer, and uh, most uh, you know, reasonably well-paid professional coaches in the U.S. work for, for the big universities. You went a different route, right? You now run a business and a coaching website called EliteRowingCoach.com. Tell us how this works. Well, as a Swiss, when I came over to the United States and I rode at Brown, and luckily uh, when I rode at Brown, I was uh, coached by Steve Gladstone. And Steve, now he's coaching Yale University. Steve, um, Steve taught me what it was to be a student in the United States. And when I went on to racing the Olympics, after 2000, I decided, okay, I'm going to make the United States my home, which means there is absolutely zero business connection that I had to make the jump from rowing a boat into a professional career. So the most natural thing for me to do is, okay, what do I know best? I know training. So I started an indoor rowing studio here in Costa Mesa. 
I loved it, uh, but I couldn't duplicate myself. And the audience that I had was only as big as my 12 rowing machines that I had in this uh, in this locale. So as as 2005 rolled around and YouTube started, I started realizing that I could actually broadcast my training to others who are rowing on the rowing machine. But but then the key came when a friend of mine said, you know, listen, you can make the most difference in people's lives for the people who absolutely need to get a few seconds faster to make a difference. And thanks to the internet speed going, uh, the broadband becoming faster, I was able to transition from in-person coaching people to fitness to really helping individuals worldwide to get faster in rowing on the rowing machine, of course, but also on the water because we were able to start pushing video files uh, online. So it's interesting, right? You have really benefited from the Internet in, in, in two ways, right? The one is the the YouTube start, start type of business model where you basically have video packages that you uh, broadcast through YouTube that you sell online through password protection. But there's also a, a two-way type of coaching, right, where you give people who want to kind of hunt down those last seconds on the earth. They send you video footage, and then you critique them. Tell us about both of those, maybe. Uh, it is incredible. You know, the quality of the image that you can now send across the Internet. For for people who are 20 years younger than us, they say, yes, but of course. But, you know, I'm 45, and having that tool available and seeing the detail, in split seconds, I can see from uh, from somebody's wrong stroke how they can improve it. So when I get the footage, they now can text it me, text it to me over the phone, or they upload it to Google Drive, and then I go through it in a slow motion sequence with the camera pointed at me, and I'm able to, you know, draw on on their on their footage that they send me, and really explain what they can do to improve and how it feels. And you know, when the camera is on me, I can mimic what the athlete is supposed to be doing and um, to make it interesting. You know, I'm not just sitting there uh, emotionless. <laughs> I, I, I speak with, the, with how my face contorts when I talk about rowing. So uh, tell us a little bit more about how that works. So if, if just kind of as a business person, as a process person, I wonder about the productivity. So I can go and we could meet in Southern California and you, we could go out in a double or I, I take out a single and you are in the launch. And it would take you an hour and a half or so at the later to, to kind of just as a time commitment that we would have to be together as a kind of as a smallest unit of analysis of feedback. Uh, but I could also upload my video footage on the ERG to you, and you could. How, how, how long do you spend then to coach an athlete to give them feedback? Is that something that you can do in five minutes, or give us a sense of the productivity boost that you got? Okay, absolutely. So when I ask for footage, I usually get around forty seconds of footage. With those forty seconds, I can easily push out five minutes of coaching. Even even ten, but see because, and I think you may hear this now. I could talk all day long about rowing, so I really have to rein it back when I'm talking, so I don't make it too long. Um, five to seven minutes of um, of coaching for a forty second piece 
that's probably my that's probably my average. Yeah. So the if you think about it again, you you I liked how you early on used this word about duplicating yourself, right? In some sense, we be it me as a professor, you as a coach, we are yep. busy people. We're kind of a scarce resource, and what we always long for is some form of leverage, right? We want to get train more students, coach more rowers, because ultimately that is the way we get paid, and also that is how we want to change the world. Um, where is this heading? I mean, so you have now again through these two ways in your platform where you broadcast videos where you give coaching tips on how to stretch your hamstrings or other things that you just recorded once in your living room lying down on the floor with a towel and you've kind of pushed that video out thousands of times and then there's this kind of this two-way interaction what what is next what what is kind of technology allowing us to do as we're entering the kind of the 2018 i have no doubt that with technology, I'm going to be able to become even more of a physical presence through a digital means. Because right now, as I'm as I'm using FaceTime or as I'm using Skype, the athletes can hear me directly through their headphones, and this is an amazing way to to coach. Um, what we what I foresee is that the virtual presence will become more and more um, tactile. Right now, it's sound, it's visual, but it's, it's still two-dimensional. My feeling is that sometime soon, we, I will be able to three-dimensionally observe a rower, and that's going to be unbelievable. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work On Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, uh, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with uh, Xeno Müller, uh, Olympic gold medalist uh, in rowing and the founder of an online coaching platform, EliteRowingCoach.com. And we're talking about how technology has really changed the way we coach, the, both the kind of coaching students in the classroom, but really the theme of today is coaching athletes. And uh, Xeno just kind of brought up this idea of kind of virtual reality, three-dimensional elements. I've, as a very kind of amateur rower, I've always been stuck by the separation between the coach and the athlete in rowing, right? And you sit there in your boat or shell, and the coach is yelling at you, uh, in my case, through a megaphone from a launch boat. Um, so this, this overcoming the distance has always been a, a, a struggle in rowing. Um, and so now, how, how would you get closer to the boat, so to say? Would you envision the, the rower wearing some kind of Google glasses, or uh, how, what is kind of allows the coach to come even closer? You know, the issue with athletes who are not um, directly in physical contact with the coach, uh, for example, in rowing, is that the rower in the boat cannot see themselves move. There's no, there's no image that is um, available for the rower as they row. But the glasses already exist where the camera from the coaching launch um, transmits an image to the rower in the boat with glasses so they can kind of have in one eye what what they look like from outside. The only issue there is if the, uh, if the camera kind of moves around a lot, you might get a rower get seasick just because he's looking at the moving, moving picture. Those are, that is already available. Um, in my opinion, there's also um, the need for sound 
Um, sound is a great way for a rower to um, measure the acceleration and the deceleration of the rowing boat. Um, it has not really been um, um, uh, developed yet uh, enough, but through sound, you can really know whether your boat is optimally gliding or not. Those are technologies that uh, should be developed. But, you know, because rowing is not a money sport, um, there are some things lag behind. But the, the good thing about it is, you know, where there's no money, there is less corruption. <laughs> so just the sport of rowing is, is, is quite pure still. So what is, uh, if you go to Princeton National Training Center or, or kind of other elite rowing places, what is the state of the art that you would find on the boats? We've, we've talked a little bit about, about the past, the rowing machine, the erg, uh, the days when you had to freeze your butt off when you were in college. We talked about the future, the virtual reality. What is, what is cutting-edge operation now? Well, the cutting-edge is to make sure that the athlete trains just enough to not overtrain. Um, there is blood testing for, um, for, for intensity to make sure that, um, that, that, again, that the athlete will not burn out physically and mentally. Um, so those are things that, that is, comes directly from elite coaching. You, you need to optimize on an individual basis each athlete. And this is where, this is where what I do is so special because in a lot of the rowing clubs, the ratio between rowers and coaches is really, is not ideal at all because there are way more rowers than coaches. So the individual attention is not there. And when you, when you want to improve the entire team, you have to work with each individual. And then it comes down to the science. What is available today scientifically for each athlete to improve as quickly as possible? Well, you need to know what their exertion levels are when they are training. It's important to be able to measure athletes' improvement in performance, not just by making them go as hard as possible. So that's really important. Um, that's where I have the ability to help each individual. That's where um, it, it lags behind a bit at the different larger club levels where the, each individual is not being focused on. So it's interesting. I cannot help but observe the kind of the similarity to other professions again, be it doctors, be it, be it kind of uh, educators like teachers or professors, where the challenge is really you have a large group of patients or students who are kind of requiring your busy time. And so you're looking for ways of kind of basically make yourself available to even more people. And again, you hope the technology somewhat helps you to do. Um, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit more again, kind of, of of where you are heading with your business, EliteRowingCoach.com. So you started with the rowing studio, right? That was uh, your 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 kind of first step into that that business. Uh, now uh, you are providing online video, educational videos online to a subscription service. You let uh, people submit videos to you, and you you coach them on. Um, 
Are you typically what, what's your business model behind that as you're kind of growing that business? Uh, is it uh, we talked to Paul Anacon in the first half of the show where he was talking about how he gets paid from the professional tennis players? Uh, what is the kind of the business model behind that? How do you grow this business? You know, being coached by an elite coach, be it in tennis or in rowing, what ends up happening is. The athlete experiences a level of information that will change the course of their lives when it comes to the sport that they're doing. That is something for me. The more people that hear about that opportunity, the, the, that's my goal. My goal is to be able to get that the information spreads. That's part of that. One of my biggest problems is to be able to let people know that I exist as a coach. And so my, the business model is to grow so that people who need to improve, who want to improve, who are passionate about improving in rowing can find me. That's probably my my weakest link in what I do is how do I get in front of, in this case, in my case, parents of high school students who want to get recruited to college, because that's what happened to me. My elite coaches helped me get the best possible ergometer scores that helped me be recruited to Brown. That is my that's what I want to do. I want to make sure that the people find me so they get the best chances possible to get recruited into universities. And that is the reason why that I'm the best, the most successful high school rowing coach in the world, because I help rowers in high school get recruited to these top schools with rowing programs and my that is the weakest the weakest part of what I need to work on the hardest is to make sure people know that I exist. So what we see in other professions, be it medicine or education, is that through technology, once there is a technology between the customer and the service provider, if you will, there's also the opportunity for the service provider to rechange the way they work. So if you imagine scaling up your business by a factor of 10, the word gets out about your coaching services, uh, rowing is becoming more popular in the U.S. Um, could you also imagine reorganizing your workforce from, I, I think you're mostly a single person business right now. Could you imagine having assistant coaches around you that you teach the Xeno Miller way or is it always, is that something that is just so uniquely yours that it's very hard to inherit to another coach? All right. So I still have room to work more. I have room to have more, more students. Overall, over the course of the last um, 12, 13 years, I've coached about 300 people uh, over the years. For me, it is, um, you know, the, the, the competitive advantage that I provide is something that, in, in a way, I want to keep secret to myself. And me coaching other coaches to see and do what I have learned from my elite coaches is something that I will defend and shelter. <laughs> I will I will keep it for myself. But 
I do understand, though, that the rowers that I end up coaching will learn from me. And then eventually, if they choose to, to coach themselves, well, um, that's great. <laughs> but, I, but, but coaching coaches, this is not my, that's not my goal. Not as long as I need to provide for my family <laughs> down here in California. Speaking of Southern California, it is still uh, winter out here in Philadelphia. Do you do you, do you miss being out on the water? I would just imagine, just like uh, for for Paul as a, a tennis coach, there's a difference of uh, basically sitting behind a computer analyzing games and running statistics or looking at videos and making kind of drawing on a computer screen versus being out there, be it in Southern California or in Philadelphia. Just isn't there some magic of being at the the lake, the river, or even the bay? All right, I'm going to tell you a little secret, Christian. In the middle of summer, I had really high blood sugar, and I realized I've got to do something about it. High blood sugar is the point I was type 2 diabetic. I made a couple phone calls to friends of mine, one of whom is a rower in his 70s in Florida. He wrote a book that is a, a physician's apology. He said, Zeno, listen. You need to make sure that you watch out what you're eating and you need to exercise, you know, at least half an hour a day. And since then, I you bet, I'm back rowing on the water and enjoying it. And now I'm totally fine. My, my blood sugar is back to normal. But the thing is, exercising in rowing, which is a whole body workout, is the most... Uh, exercising if you can enjoy it is beautiful if exercising is like playing if it's not forced then this is something that you will adopt into your lifestyle i do row here in newport beach in the back bay i have traded um my single skull for an sup a stand-up paddleboard onto which i have now placed a sliding rigger so I'm rowing an SUP around into the in, the in the harbor here, which makes it very, very pleasant because those things are more stable. So I don't really have to worry about accidents or avoiding breaking my expensive single skull. There are ways to stay physically active and 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 not overdo it. And I know we're going from from rowing coaching to health, but here's the thing: the the hardest thing for me to understand is that you know once you're 45 years old and you have all these family commitments and business commitments, what is the minimal effective dose? What is the minimum that you should do in order to maintain? And that is you know between 30 and 45 minutes. Now, some of the maniac maniacs who are training way more than that at age 45, they laugh at me and they say, hey, Zeno, let's do a race. Uh, then I can finally beat you because I couldn't beat you when you were in your 20s. Well, <laughs> I've gone around the corner. If they want to be competitive to the point that they want to puke their gut out, they can. I don't. <laughs> I, I want to find harmony in my life, in my body, physically, mentally. 
And I hope I answered the question in one way or the other to your question. So it, it points to another interesting market, right? So right now you're focusing primarily on high school students. I noticed, uh, I think there's a company out here on the East Coast at least called Team Concept that takes rowing and the lessons of rowing and the lessons for life to executives and, and busy kind of senior decision makers and uh, gets them involved through executive teaching, through having them experience the uh, kind of what it means to be in a boat. Is that is this something that you could envision yourself doing? You know, absolutely, because there's so much to share and parallels to draw with what it took to be successful in rowing, making the transition from the sport to the teaching process, to the coaching process. Just the other day, someone said to me, hey, Zeno, you know, the 2,000-meter race that you do at the Olympics are always... um, four quarters is the first 500, second, third, and fourth 500 meters. That you could draw a parallel with the quarter, the financial quarters in businesses. And I said, you know, that's exactly right. You know, how do you handle, how do you handle a financial year? You can talk about the race, how you, how you pace yourself. So for me, talking to business entities, with rowing and drawing parallels, I have done it. That is something that I really enjoy doing. Says Zeno uh, Muller. Thank you, Zeno, for being on the show. Uh, we've reached the end of the show today, and that means thinking for a moment of what we have uh, learned and what was common between our tennis coaching and the rowing coaching uh, discussion that we had. I was just struck by the impact of technology that it has on our jobs. Uh, I think in both cases we saw how technology allowed the coaches to do a better job in terms of having more access to data, better analytics, having access to world-class uh, coaches as Zeno as, you know, gets us to the second element. It, it, it overcomes distance, right? Even if I'm in a power remote corner with no coach around me anywhere uh, within a mile or, or within 100 miles, I can use the technology to get access to the most knowledge where it's needed. It allowed uh, Paul to also coach Roger Federer on the tour, even with Paul being back home and Roger playing Wimbledon or far, some other faraway tournament. And it also, as kind of Zeno called it, duplicating yourself. It allows us to build scale, driving productivity and efficiency and, and really making coaching also a more promising and profitable business. That's all I have to say for today. You've been listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM. Let me thank our sound expert, uh, Danielle, and my producer, Matt, for their wonderful support today. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.